0: Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Kraft coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is good to be with you another Thursday evening, where we have the opportunity to engage all subject matter concerning apologetics. And if you are a faithful listener to this radio program, you know that uh, Rob Sheridan has been joining me. So, Rob, it is good to have you with me another evening. Great to be back again, Joe. So, Rob, uh, this night, Thursday night, we have the opportunity to uh, wrap up this first section of Dr. Hahn's uh, Reasons to Believe with a chapter that has us engaging not atheism, but theism. Not so much making a case for the existence of God, but who is God, if you will. And so, certainly there is a thrust and an emphasis on Christianity Uh, sacred scripture. And so we're going to go to sacred scripture uh, tonight and do so with a focus on uh, Christ fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament. And we're also going to look at uh, miracles, a few things there from the Gospel of John, and it will afford us an opportunity to look at a couple of miracles within the history of the church, uh, which I think will be a good thing for our listeners tonight. So, Uh, With that, what can we say in regards to this motive of credibility within the context of the prophets? You know, one of the ways in which we know whether or not a prophet is, uh, is authentic or not is if the prophecy comes to fulfillment, right? So, in the Old Testament, you have all of these prophets and all of these prophecies, and in the New, you have Christ fulfilling these prophecies. I've talked a great deal about this Collective, we look look at the Old Testament and the New Testament as this kind of promise-fulfillment structure of faith, where we can better gather who Christ is, what he has come to establish, and ultimately how we are called to share in this kind of fulfillment, if you will, as he calls us into relationship with him. So Rob, what I want to do with you tonight is look at some of these uh, prophecies a little bit and say, okay, what does this mean for the first century reader? What does this mean for the faithful Jew who is aware of these prophecies? Uh, who, certainly in hearing the words of Christ and taking a step back and looking at his life, say, this, this kind of looks familiar to me. And we must remember a couple things. A, all of the prophetic literature was, was public record. And B, for these faithful Jews, they knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. You know, every all of the prophecies were on their fingertips. So the question begs to be asked, why didn't all the faithful Jews just follow Christ? Well, we're going to get into that a little bit, but let's speak a little bit to um, some of these prophecies.
1: Oh, sure, Joe. We've we've got a list here, and this is just a small sampling of yeah. the, the hundreds and hundreds uh, that Jesus filled in his lifetime, um, First, that the Messiah would be born a child, but would be a mighty God, from Isaiah 9, 6-7. He'd be born a virgin, from Isaiah seven fourteen. Born in Bethlehem, from Micah 5-2. He'd be born in the line of the King David, Jeremiah 23-5. He would heal the blind lame and the death, deaf, Isaiah 35, 5-6. He would be betrayed by a friend, Psalm 52, 12-14. He would suffer and be despised from Isaiah 53, 2 through 7, and that his flock would abandon him from Zechariah 13, 7.
0: Yeah, and all those prophecies, I think, you know, for our listeners, most of those are self-explanatory. Of course, the Christ child, the infant king born in a manger. Uh, your passage there that you were reading, Isaiah seven fourteen, you know, the wonderful opening to the Gospel of Matthew, where he's very specific to, to highlight the Blessed Virgin Mary. He was born in Bethlehem. This prophecy obviously fulfilled. He would be born into the line of of King David. Why does the Gospel of Matthew put such an emphasis, Rob, on David's lineage, David's pedigree, his ancestry? Well, he wants the Palestinian Christian Jew to come to understand and appreciate what's going on there. Uh, who who is Christ? Well, he comes from the line of David. He wants them to see that he's a fulfillment of this very prophecy from Jeremiah 23.5. This was very important to Matthew. You know, we're sitting here talking about, you know, motives of credibility from, you know, church fathers, maybe the, the church fathers spent a lot of time showing how Christ fulfilled these Old Testament prophecies. Well, what about the evangelists themselves? You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew opens up his gospel with this. You know, we often think, Rob, well, what's the gospel? What's the, the good news, the evangelion, the transforming message? It's repent and believe. You know, we've been given this new gift and grace. Well, he opens up with, with this, and, and it, it, it has you scratching your head a little bit. Well, there's a reason why. Christ has fulfilled this prophecy. Uh, and then, of course, you know, he'd be betrayed by a friend, <laughs> uh, Judas, He'd be suffered and despised. All of Isaiah 53 really um, is, it's, well, it's known as the, the uh, passage of the suffering servant, and it highlights the passion narrative. Of course, his flock would abandon him. And then we, we have others here, Rob. You know, he would be pierced by nails and by a sword, Psalm 22. You know, Psalm 22, by the way, is what is called a todah psalm. A todah in the Hebrew is thank offering. Uh, it was a psalm. That was actually sung during a Torah sacrifice, a Torah meal. And uh, interestingly enough, Rob, Psalm 22 starts with the words, uh, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So when our Lord is on the cross, he's quoting Psalm 22. And again, (laughs) the question begs to be asked what was going on in the mind and heart? Of those who were there, watching the crucifixion, hearing him, all but seeing Psalm 22, the one who was crucified, the one who was fulfilling Isaiah 53, what was going on in the heart, you know, and we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, He would be a just man, tortured and killed by his enemies. He would be executed with criminals, right? Criminal on the right, the criminal on the left. His enemies tore his garments and gambled for them. Again, that's Psalm 22. We know in the um, in the crucifixion narrative, they cast lots for his garments. Of course, he would rise from the dead. He'd bring all the nations the light of the true God. And so again, once you know, once again in the um, crucifixion narrative, the, the cross itself you know the the different languages on the cross itself spoke to the fact that he is. Come to bring Gentile, Jew, Greek alike unto Himself. So, Rob, what we have here is uh, this this promise fulfillment piece, where we are made to look at this in such a way where, yeah, this this offers for us an invitation to go deeper. So, with the likes of uh, say Saint Justin, Saint Irenaeus of Lyon, or Saint Ignatius of Antioch, these church fathers, Melito, what they would do is go into these passages and draw out how Christ fulfilled these passages, and they would be within the context of inviting people to go deeper into their faith. They were uh, motives for credibility. Yeah, that this person whom you crucified was the Son of God. And this was very provocative for a lot of uh, uh, readers of, of these early Christian texts.
1: Well, yeah, and I think it's it's really important that we recognize who these were written for. And it, initially, people who lived 2,000 years ago, and this was powerful stuff for them. The, the, the testimony of the prophets to 2,000 years later might not be as, a, as appealing to us now, but look at what it did in the ancient world. Look at what it did those, those first 1,000 years as, as the word just swept through Palestine, um, as, as the scripture was being written and these letters were being promulgated. Um people people could test this testimony of the prophets, but with with pretty historical um, closeness, the the historical proximity of of being close to there,
0: yeah, it's hard for us in two thousand and fourteen maybe to grab hold of the cumulative effect of why these early Christians were spending so much time uh, showing how Christ came to to fulfill the old covenant. Uh, But certainly, as you speak to it, Rob, this was very important. And again, this is why Matthew opens up his gospel with it, because he knew the importance of that tangible evidence that those readers, those listeners to what uh, they were listening to and and reading, certainly how they could be impacted. But did this mean, Rob, they came to embrace this new Christian faith? You know, I had mentioned earlier, you know, you have these these faithful Jews. They were kind of waffling. We have to always remember uh, and appreciate human nature. That ultimately, I think we've talked about this a little bit before, there can be all of the reasons to believe in the world. We can have all of these motives for, for credibility, but it still has to penetrate the heart. It has to uh, take us to a place where... Ultimately, it has us going deeper in our relationship with Christ. Because if it doesn't, hours pass by, days pass by, and soon you forget. You, you forget the wonder of, of God and what he has done. And so this is very important. And, you know, we have an example of this in uh, John. If you're to go to the Gospel of John, uh, we move here now from prophetic motive, if you will, Rob, 2. miracles themselves. And as we talk about these motives for credibility and how it should lead us to go deeper, even sometimes miracles didn't work. You know, the the passage here from uh, the Gospel of John chapter 2, verses 23 to 24. I mean, listen to this, and even 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not trust himself to them because he knew all men and needed no one to bear witness of man for he himself knew what was in man. What's going on there, Rob? Okay, so these people saw everything that Jesus did. They saw his signs. They saw his wonders. They saw his miracles. And yet, John wants us to see something. He wants us to understand that Christ. He's looking at this and he's saying, yeah, you, you are still deficient in your faith. You marvel at what I do, but it doesn't lead to the response of faith. And so what does John then do? He goes to Nicodemus. Now there is a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, notice by night. He doesn't want to be noticed. <laughs> this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He's marveling, and we're not going to go through the whole narrative there with Nicodemus, but he doubts, and ultimately he doesn't give himself to Christ in these sets of verses. We don't see that. We see him questioning our Lord, and so that we have this dialogue where ultimately Jesus lays down the challenge for him and he continues to question he doesn't get it but wait a second you know Robbie he saw the signs he was marveling but yet no response of faith
1: well uh, you see it with even people today oh if I could go back in time and live in the time of Jesus and see what he did I would believe or if I could see miracles I could I would believe well I, I'm not so sure because so many people in Jesus' time, they, they were with him, they saw what he did, but when the rubber came to the road, here's my teachings, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, I'm going to be persecuted, I'm going to die and rise again, well, all those signs and wonders, they kind of went away when the going went went tough, and who was, who was left at the cross with Jesus? Mary and John, everyone yeah. else scattered to the wind, and and I mean, even even Peter, who was there at the transfiguration, who saw Jesus all his glory, who saw Jesus raise a man from the dead, even he denies Jesus, runs away. So uh, signs and miracles definitely can be that invitation, but what do we do with it? What do we do with it?
0: Yeah, Robin, you know, in our own lives, you know, we pray that uh, prayer that comes to us in the Gospel of Mark, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And we all pray that prayer because our faith is, is deficient. I mean, we, we go before God and we pray for that grace, for an increase in faith. But you know, Rob, it is important to be mindful of what we're talking about right now because we can get stuck thinking, as you just spoke to thinking about, well, if I only saw this miracle or that miracle. And ultimately, you know, the Lord has given us miracles through the ages, and I had noted off the top that I wanted to talk about a couple of these miracles, these invitations from God, and, you know, what do they mean?
1: Well, yeah, and, and they're, they're like, for me, they're like a little kickstart, a little boost to like get me going, oh yeah, God's doing amazing things, and he, he's, he's pointing to something, um, one, of the, one of the miracles I'd like to bring up is uh, the incorrupt bodies of, of several saints. Um, I, I love the saints. They're, they're totally in my wheelhouse. And um, some saints, after they've died, um, as part of the canonization process, their bodies are exhumed, and they'll find very little to zero traces of de- decay, months, even years. After the body's been buried and I'm not talking like preserved in a glass coffin with hermetically sealed vaults I mean these are people who sometimes couldn't even afford a coffin and they were just put in the dirt and they'll bring the body out and the the doctors are amazed at the, the the intactness of the body that it's still able to move rigor mortis hasn't set in years later sometimes and the smell of decay is often like not there it'll smell sweet like like roses um and these 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 incorrupt bodies of saints what they point to is they point to the resurrection they point to how holiness is is life-giving is preserving and sin is a corruption and death and um it's just it's real interesting to note and and you know you look at the lives of these people and you're like oh well yeah Of course, this is going to happen to them. Bernadette Subaru, Saint John Vianney. You you can go on YouTube. You can you can look these things up, and you can see the pictures, and it's it's amazing. It it it, it's jaw dropping.
0: Yeah, when uh, my wife and I went on our uh, honeymoon, we went to Italy, and you know we had our uh, game plan of what we wanted to do. You know, we spent our time in Rome, and we spent our time in Assisi, and we went into the churches and. We, we mapped it out as a kind of pilgrimage, you know, but if there was one thing, Rob, that blew me away was uh, the fact that on a couple of occasions, I was unaware that the church I was about to walk in had an incorrupt body. And, you know, I had done my homework on the incorruptibles, and I had talked about them in different uh, talks and whatnot, but I had never actually encountered an incorrupt body. And... Boy, I walked into some of these churches, and my goodness, I was just blown away. There it was. There was this body, incorrupt, you know. And you know, there would be people there explaining what an incorrupt body is, and you did a good job of explaining it, Rob. Yeah, rigor mortis hasn't set in, you know, and it really should. I mean, the scientists have gone in and they they went into their studies as atheists and they leave as as believers in God because they couldn't explain it rationally. My encounters with these incorruptibles, it was, it was a push. It was a shove. And I realized, too, Rob, that uh, I am weak in faith. You know, I come up on, on, on this incorruptible and I say, my goodness, you know, how, how can I not believe more? You know, But again, it highlights our earlier point of the need to pray for an increase in faith. Because all of these invitations, they're out there. But in the end, what do they mean if these uh, invitations are not going to be nurtured? You know, Rob, I had mentioned before we started this uh, program tonight, you know, John 14, 26, the Holy Spirit will come to remembrance and he will bear witness to the truth and you will testify to this truth. We have to call upon the Holy Spirit so that we might remember what God has done for us and appreciate all of the gifts that he's given to us, just not in our own lives, but, Rob, how he has brought these things in history into our life, how these things have, in history have been brought to our attention, so as to increase our faith, so that we might respond more fully to do his will and all that we do. As you talk about the incorruptibles, Rob, Uh, There's another great miracle out there uh, that I wanted to touch upon. Again, all you have to do is YouTube. All you have to do, I mean, this is the great thing about the internet, the World Wide Web, just go online and you can read about it. I mean, this isn't, you know, Rob Sheridan, Joe Holcraft carrying on, battling on about things that are untrue. No, this is, this stuff uh, ought to grab our attention, you know. So anyhow, I want to talk about the Eucharistic miracle in So. What is this? The the, the sacred species actually became flesh, and the wine actually became blood. Uh, The phenomenon dates back to the 8th century. Uh, It was a Basilian monk who had doubts about the real presence of Christ in the sacred species. He was offering Mass in a church in the town of Lanciano in Italy. When he pronounced the words of consecration, the host was miraculously changed into physical flesh, and the wine into physical blood. Uh, later, the blood coagulated and the flesh remained the same. Uh, these relics ultimately were kept in the cathedral there in Lanciano. Now, one Dr. Lanoli, a professor of anatomy and pathological histology, is the only doctor who had analyzed the relics of the miracle in Lanciano. His findings stirred the interest, as you can well imagine, Rob, in the scientific world. At the initiative of the archbishop there in Lanciano, and of the provincial minister of uh, the conventuals that live there in Abruzzo, and with the authorization from, from Rome, in 1970, they had these relics examined scientifically. And it was this Dr. Lanoli who was entrusted with the study. He was assisted by a Dr. Bertelli a retired professor of human anatomy at the University of Siena. So what happened here? Linoli extracted parts of the relics with great care and then analyzed the remains of the quote-unquote miraculous flesh and blood. He presented his findings on March 4th, 1971. His study, Rob, confirmed that the flesh and blood were of human origin. The flesh was unequivocally cardiac tissue, and the blood was of type AB. As regards to the flesh, I had in my hand the endocardium. Therefore, there is no doubt at all that it is cardiac tissue. In regards to the blood, the scientists emphasized that the blood group is the same as that of the man of the Holy Shroud of Turin. And it is particular because it has the characteristics of a man who was born and lived in the mi- Middle East uh, regions. I know, Rob, the Shroud of turn is quite popular, even in, in secular circles. People are very well aware of what the Shroud of turn is. And I thought it's interesting to note that, that certainly to make that connection. Linole's analysis revealed no traces of preservatives in the elements, meaning that the blood could not have been extracted from a corpse because it would have been rapidly altered. This was a question they wanted to take up. And ultimately, Linole's report was published in 1971. Now, I think for our listeners, Rob, this point is important. In 1973, the Higher Council of the WHO appointed a scientific commission to verify the Italian doctor's conclusions. The work was carried out over 15 months, with a total of 500 500 examinations, the conclusions of all the researchers, both secular and religious, confirmed what had been stated and already published in Dr. Linole's work. Uh, The extract of the scientific research of the WHO's Medical Commission was published in New York and Geneva in 1976, confirming the science's inability to explain the phenomenon of the Eucharistic Miracle in Laziano. What does all of this mean, you know, Rob? We talk about the incorruptibles. We talk about the Eucharistic Miracle in Laziano. They are God's invitations to us to go deeper and to ask, why? But in doing so, in doing so, and and going deeper, and asking God, why would you give us these gifts that we might pray for an increase of faith, that we might look at what we've talked about uh, tonight, Rob, with regards to you know, Christ fulfilling so many prophecies and the importance of these miracles and what they do, and look at them as an invitation that God would have us asking new questions that lead to new beginnings.
1: Sure, Joe. Um, you know, God, God told us he's not leaving us. He's going to be with us until the end of the age. And, and that's what these do. They show us that God is still with us, that, that he's still moving, that, that the signs and wonders that he worked didn't just stop in the Old Testament, didn't just stop with Jesus, didn't just stop with the last of the apostles. They continue to this very day. God is still working in his church. He's still working in his people.
0: Yeah, and as you talk about this, Rob, I think it would be nice uh, to end with kind of reflection on what a miracle is. So a miracle is something that belongs to the supernatural phenomenon. And certainly this is what the first three Gospels talk about. But I do think it's important to go to the Gospel of John because John treats miracles as signs. So for the evangelist, a sign is a powerful proof of our Lord's power, but it still has a greater purpose. You know, Jesus works these visible, material, historical signs in order to signify something greater invisible spiritual and we can say transcendent for example you know the transubstantiation of water into wine is a miracle or sign that signifies the greater marvel of the holy eucharist of course this is what we see in john 6 the the miracle of the loaves and fishes preceding the eucharistic discourse and the water of baptism a sign of new birth into divine life. Now, for our human eyes, these divine mysteries are veiled. So it calls us again to go deeper. But it is in baptism that we receive the grace to see the mysteries of Christianity through the eyes of faith, because it is the grace of faith that unveils the mysteries for us. And of course, it is in our response of faith that we see. And it is in this sight that enables us, Rob, to better understand, explain, and defend the faith. We are to echo those words of the Roman centurion. Lord, just say the words, and I know my servant will be healed. Let us close in prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven.
1: And listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening from 6.30 to 7 p.m. right here on KKXX. If you have questions or feedback, you may email Joe at jholjmj at yahoo.com. For a copy of today's program, visit joeholecraft.org or call KKXX during regular business hours at 894-7325. Thanks for listening to the Seeds of Truth on KKXX.